It's fair to say that Australia's relationship with China has been a bit of a roller coaster lately. A couple of weeks ago, Prime Minister Albanese was welcomed in Beijing. But this week, the Australian government branded the Chinese Navy's conduct around the HMAS Toowoomba unsafe and unprofessional. China's state-owned English-language news website, The Global Times, quoted the Ministry of Defence saying that Australia should respect the facts and stop rude and irresponsible accusations. And then on Thursday, the Toowoomba sailed through the Taiwan Straits in what China has called a provocative action. Quite the roller coaster. Although a roller coaster is probably better than a train wreck, which is how things were when China imposed trade sanctions on Australia a few years ago and for quite some time simply refused to speak to ministers in the federal government. So in that context, how should we assess the recent ups and downs with Australia's relationship between China and ourselves? Bethany Allen is the award-winning China reporter for Axios and author of the book Beijing Rules, China's Quest for Global Influence. And Bethany joins us now from what China would definitely not want us calling the independent nation of Taiwan. Thanks very much for joining us, Bethany. Thank you for having me. So, Bethany, you've looked at what you describe as China's authoritarian economic statecraft. Through the lens of your research, what would you observe about those recent ups and downs in Australia's relationship with China? Well, I think it's following a larger trajectory that we're seeing this past year uh, with other nations' relationships with China as well. It's clear in the past year that the Chinese government has been trying to mend ties with numerous mm. democracies, including the UK, including the US, and including Australia. And on the, you know, the sides of those countries as well, there is a desire to not continue this kind of death spiral in relations uh, that we're seeing with Beijing. So what we've seen from Australia is, is well within that context. And, and if you look at the Chinese side, you know, what What's what's the situation domestically there? What are they dealing with that Xi Jinping would be interested also in trying to repair relations? Well, in China, their economy is facing the roughest headwinds in decades. For the first time since China's opening up and reform, foreign direct investment in China has fallen. And China's GDP growth rate has also fallen to its lowest level uh, in, in decades, you know, barring the, you know, with the exception of the pandemic and the global recession. And, and something else we're seeing is that the U.S. Uh, and other democracies are adopting pretty tough restrictions on China's emerging technology sector. So what we're seeing from Beijing is, is that, you know, it wants to uh, maintain its access to markets, maintain its access to um, foreign direct investment, make sure that its tech sector isn't hobbled by even further restrictions. But why isn't that happening smoothly? You know, why can't Albanese go to Beijing, have a nice meeting with Xi Jinping and things get better? Because the factors inside of China are, are so complicated. And among other things, what China wants um, is in, to some extent anathema to better relations with democratic nations that are committed to upholding a rules-based order. The Chinese government, let's be clear, wants hegemony in the Indo-Pacific. And they're not going to say that outright. They deny that that's what they want, but they want to have basically free reign for their navy there. And that is one of the reasons that we are seeing you know, this year uh, in particular, a rising number of these really quite shocking and dangerous incidents that happen in open waters, in international waters. Hmm. 
Bethany, one of the surprising things reading your book about China's quest for global influence was how prominent Australia was in the narrative, both in terms of recounting the economic sanctions that have happened over the last few years, but also a longer story about a change in Australia's perspective towards its relations with China and how influential that has been in, for example, the United States. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. You know, it's so interesting um, because in 2018, 2019, as the Trump administration was doing its, you know, its pivot to a tougher China policy, European nations and and even inside of the U.S., the the left of center kind of wing of our politics believed that this was simply another example of Trumpism, that it was an excess of the Trump administration. We'd already seen this happen with Australia. You know, who was the first leader of a of a country to mention in public to say in public that the chinese government is interfering in the politics of democracies it wasn't a us leader it was malcolm turnbull in 2017 uh, at his speech mm. at shangri-la and for the us on the us side it wasn't another almost year and a half before any U.S. official made a similar accusation. And that was Mike Pence, uh, then vice president, in a, in a speech uh, in October 2018. So we saw Australia lead not just in dealing with the issue of the Chinese government covert uh, efforts to influence democracies, but also in its attempts to push back at that and adopt tougher and defensive policies to defend the integrity of a political system. And that is, I think, quite extraordinary uh, to see that a, 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 middle, a middle-sized country like Australia, um, much, much smaller than China, much, much smaller than the U.S., was in fact so out in front of every other democracy in the world, with the possible exception of Taiwan. On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with Bethany Allen, China reporter for Axios and the author of the book, Beijing rules China's quest for global influence. Bethany, I think it was those early pushes from the Australian government that caused the editor of the Global Times to describe Australia as a bit like chewing gum on the bottom of China's shoe. Sometimes you have to find a stone to scrape it off, he said. Is that sort of rhetoric now a familiar part of Chinese economic statecraft? Oh, absolutely. Uh, And, you know, he he made that remark uh, in the, the first year of the pandemic when Uh, Scott Morrison made that call for an independent inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus. And of course, uh, famously, the Chinese government slapped a bunch of tariffs on a wide swath of Australian products. You know, watching that as I I was from Washington, D.C., that was really stunning because it was the first time that I saw China use its authoritarian economic statecraft in a way that has you know a direct effect on literally everyone in the world, not just Australians, because this is China trying to prevent basic scientific fact-finding on a public health issue of global significance. Previously, what we had seen when the Chinese government uses economic coercion, it was pretty much always around a more limited scope of issues that were very, very important to Beijing, but had you know fewer implications for the rest of the world. And that would be particularly, it's, so its core interests, which are pretty much about territorial sovereignty or have been in the past. So 
Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, you know, not allowing people or trying to prevent people from criticizing China's domestic human rights record. And this was the first time that it was China's economic coercion was expanded to such a, a global issue. And it was also one of the first times that it had been deployed so directly. So we had this comment from the editor of the Global Times uh, around the same time the Chinese ambassador to Australia made a, a sort of a similar threat, you know, something like, wouldn't it be bad? Wouldn't it be a shame if Chinese people stopped eating Australian beef because of this comment? Um, and then right away, tariffs were, you know, were, were slapped onto the Australian economy. And what we saw during the pandemic was that the, you know, China's leaders, Xi Jinping, what, what seems to have happened is that she made the assessment that the time of democracies was coming to an end, that democracies were in decline, that China's moment had come, and that this was a, a, a done deal and that China could do whatever it wanted and no one would stop it. The, the, this was, I believe, a miscalculation. I think that the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party has underestimated the resilience and the strength of democracies. And if you look at Australia, you know, the way that Australia responded to those tariffs and to that very direct bullying was not by giving in or collapsing, but rather, you know, demonstrating a, a kind of resilience. And I think that is something that as Beijing saw country after country stand up to this, begin to work together, I think it has caused, uh, you know, she to recalculate some of his, uh, you know, some of his assessments of the balance of power in the world. Yes, yeah, so one of the themes of your book, Bethany, is the, I suppose, the imbalance between Chinese state economic power and individual companies, corporations and individual actors when confronted by that power. And that, I suppose, leads to your theme of the need to build democratic economic statecraft. Could you outline briefly what you mean by that? Yeah. So just to define the term authoritarian economic statecraft is the the set of actually quite innovative levers of economic power that the Chinese government has developed over the past 25 years or so to shape the decision making of companies, governments, multilateral institutions and individuals to bring that those that decision making more in line with the Chinese Communist Party's core interests. And it has been in many cases very successful. Uh, and we see that from you know sectors such as Hollywood, which has completely self-censored for the past 26 years. And we see it with the way that the South Korean government has prevented its own submarine companies from working with Taiwan. And, you know, we see it in the way that the United Nations um, has, it, it took years and years and years for the United Nations to even mention in public that there was a genocide happening, happening in Xinjiang. So, you know, like this. Um, and one of the, one of the problems, one of the reasons that it has taken us so long to acknowledge this kind of power, there, there's several reasons, uh, but, but one of them is the adoption of, you can call it whatever you want, in the book I choose to call it neoliberalism, which is the idea that the government should stay out of economic behavior and should stay out of the, the decisions that businesses make to the greatest extent possible. What I think that the U.S. has done, what the adoption of neoliberalism has done, is remove 
political and moral values and frameworks from economic behavior. The problem with that is that the Chinese government has come in and seen that as a void and replaced it with its own authoritarian framework to regulate economic behavior. There has not been an equal pushback from democratic countries. What does this look like? What it looks like is you have a single foreign company that is up against the world's largest authoritarian state. Who will win every single time in that situation? <laughs> of course, the world's largest authoritarian state will win. That is why in my book, I argue that democratic governments need to regulate more. They need to have clear laws about what is and is not acceptable behavior for their own companies. But this is not a burden. This is not regulation that will strangle economic behavior. Rather, what you have is that it lifts the contest from a contest of unequals, one company versus a government, to a contest of equals because it makes it a contest between one government and another. So if Beijing is upset by these rules, you know, if a, if a company says, hey, Beijing, I would love to make money in your market by doing what you say, but I literally can't. Here's this law. The Chinese government has to go to the government that made that law and, you know, and uh, document its protest. And then you can do this on a kind of a, a government to government level. That is the correct approach. It's a fascinating argument. And as you say, some of the recommendations you make uh, do seem quite overwhelming, but, in the, but the scale of the task is also a fairly overwhelming one as well. Bethany, thank you so much for speaking with us on Sunday Extra. Thank you so much for having me. That's Bethany Allen, a China reporter for Axios and author of the book Beijing Rules, China's Quest for Global Influence. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.